0: The scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, and it contains one of my favorite verses where it says that people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn <clears throat> with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said when he arrived at Bethlehem the elders of the town trembled when they met him they asked do you come in peace Samuel replied yes in peace I've come to sacrifice to the Lord consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me and then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice When they arrived samuel saw eliab and thought surely the lord's anointed stands here before the lord but the lord said to samuel do not consider his appearance or his height for i have rejected him the lord does not look at the things people look at people look at the outward appearance but the lord looks at the heart and then jesse called abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord.
1: There's a legend uh, about one of my favorite Christian authors. Anybody want to guess what one of my favorite Christian authors is? Yeah, you know. C.S. Lewis it's not written anywhere but it's reported and the report was this Lewis uh, was entering a room where a lot of other professors were chatting about Christianity and religions and as he entered the room they looked up at him and they said Jack um, we're a debating about what makes Christianity unique among all other religions. And as the story goes, Lewis just kept walking. He said, that's easy. Grace. And he walked out of the faculty lounge. I think he's right. I'm not an expert in world religions. But one thing that seems to be unique to Christianity... It's grace. You know why? Because of that. That's behind me every Sunday morning. What is a greater demonstration of grace than that God should send His only Son to die on a cross for those who do not deserve it? That's the heart of the Christian message. And even the apostles who were immersed in the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures saw in every page of those Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures this story, yet unfulfilled, of grace. And I can't imagine too many other people in the Old Testament who demonstrate the doctrine of grace better, and by that I mean for better or for worse, than David. You heard from the reading, David was a person who had the kind of heart that God could see when nobody else could. Samuel was looking at everyone in this lineup. And It almost makes you feel like a police lineup, Bring him forward. Let me look at him. Samuel's going down the sons of Jesse, one after another, and he says, none of them are a fit. Some of them look like it, but they're not the one. Where's your last son, in effect? Don't you have another one? Sure. David comes out. And as Ellie says, one of her favorite phrases in the Bible, God looks not on the outward appearance, but he looks on the heart. So Samuel got a message from God, and he said this young boy with a ruddy complexion and smaller than his brothers has got the heart of a lion. And as is repeated a couple of times, even in the book of Acts, this man has a heart for God, or he's a man after God's own heart. I want to give a quick survey Of David okay so strap yourself in we're gonna hurry through it you saw the first thing he was chosen out of nowhere as a shepherd in the field and this David it becomes clear early on had a very very fiery disposition not unlike his ruddy complexion apparently red hair David had a fiery personality And, quite frankly, an impetuous personality. When he was still a young man, his father sent him to bring bread and cheese to his brothers who were on the front line. To fight the battle against the Philistines who were always encroaching on Israel's territory. And when he got there, you know the story This giant of a man, almost 10 feet tall, according to the Bible, shows up and roars at the armies of God and everybody cowers. And David, little guy, not a soldier, just a shepherd, said this, How dare he defy the armies of the living God? Now you might say to yourself, young whippersnapper can say anything he wants when he's not on the front line. That, of course, goes away in the next section. Because the young whippersnapper who seems to be able to say whatever he wants when he's not on the front line places himself on the front line at perhaps 17 years of age and says to Saul, if nobody else will, I will. And Saul, you know, the story gives him his armor, and David puts it on, and it's way too big and heavy, and he says, sir, this is not me. Let me go out alone. So he goes out with the sling, which, by the way, shepherds could cut a hair with. They were so good. Five smooth stones, and he walks out, and the giant laughs at him and says he's going to feed him to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David says, you come to me with a spear and a sword, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And then he unleashes the rock from his sling and with one stone brings the giant down. I I can't uh, tell that story or remember that story without remembering when my son was really little. His name was David. David. I was pastoring at First Baptist, and uh, it was Children's Sunday, and I was supposed to do something like a children's sermon, and so I told the story of David and Goliath. Now, what the kids didn't know is that my son David was a part of the story. Um, He was sitting on the front row, which was not odd because he was there with all the children, but for those of you who might have been paying attention he had this like little red bandana thing around his head and under his chair he had a, a slingshot not exactly like the real david my father had made it for him out of a tree branch he had that slingshot and i'm telling the story in waxing eloquent and when i get to the point of the goliath giant coming out and saying Who's going to fight me? Is there anybody out there big enough to fight me? My son David, who's about four or five, jumps up off the front seat. And the kids are like, and he runs up with his slingshot and he says, I will. Then we let him do it and he slayed me and I fell face down on the platform with a mighty thud. Um, there was carpet on that platform, so it was a little easier than here. But if I do say so, I went down hard. Um, It was a great moment, but it's a moment that captures a fierce personality that is fearless. And and the moment in in my story showed how amazing it was. In in contrast to me, my son David, he couldn't have been much bigger than this. The kids could see it. David had a fiery personality, but part of his fiery personality got him into trouble over and again. His fiery personality could be called impetuousness as well. By the way, if I was a psychologist and analyzing David's story, I would probably come up with all kinds of theories concerning him. Schizophrenic, bipolar, crazy, the list goes on. I'm not suggesting he was not any of those. I just want to put it out there that he was an unusual character. This David, who had a fiery personality, who brought down the giant on one particular occasion, had a band of rebels around him, basically, to protect him from Saul, who was hunting him. And one of the things he and his band of rebels did is they lived in the field. And when you live in the field, you try to figure out a way to make Your way. And this band of rebels who were on David's side would periodically find shepherds who were out in the fields, and they would keep watch over the sheep. In other words, they would be like a barrier wall around the shepherds to keep thieves and wolves and everything else away. David and his men had done that probably many times, but one story illustrates it. They had kept a protective eye on a man called Nabal and his flocks. So when Nabal was about to shear his sheep, that's when you brought in the prophet. You also had a grand feast. And David sent his men to Nabal and he said, Tell Nabal, look, we've been guarding your sheep and your men for a long time and no harm's come to them. Why don't you let us share in the feast and give us some things and sort of like payment, goodwill. The story came back to Nab, uh, from Nabal through David's servants and they said, Nabal said, who's that dog, David? He's just run away from his master. I got no use for him. Tell him no the same fiery little boy who took down the giant exploded with wrath. And he went over the top. Instead of just being insulted, David said to his men, strap on your swords. And he strapped on his. And he said, we're going to go wipe him and his people out. Really? For an insult? They were on their way to a slaughter. David's impetuous nature leading them. And on their way, Abigail, who had gotten word and was Nabal's wife, came out to greet David and she had things for him to eat. And she said, Sir, my Lord, basically don't be impetuous. You realize what's going to happen if you do this? You're going to have blood on your hands. You're going to be viewed even more as a fugitive, as an outcast, maybe a murderer. Uh, my husband is an out-of-control man. Everybody knows that. Please, don't do it. Da- David didn't. He said, you're a wise woman. You've called me and spared me from a trap. And he backed away. Eventually, Nabal dies, and David marries Abigail. Not the first time or the last time he would marry yet another woman. David was a fierce personality, but he was also a man who was deferential to authority. When David was in the service of King Saul, as a young man, King Saul would fly into a rage and and routinely try to do harm to David. On two occasions in the Bible, there's a description of how Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. And David escaped. But he continued to serve Saul. It was like, I know the man is crazy, King Saul, but he's God's servant, and I'm going to do my best to serve him until he got to the place that he realized service to Saul was going to be his end. So he fled. And after he fled, he was in the hills. Saul hunted him like a dog, and on two different occasions, David had an opportunity to kill Saul while he was sleeping. And you know what David's response was? To his body armor who said, let's take him out. No, I'm not going to touch God's anointed. No, out of deference to the authority that God has invested in him, I'm not going to strike him dead even though according to justice, maybe I could. David was also not just deferential to authority and had a fiery personality. He was passionate about worship. You know what we read, the 23rd Psalm. You know any psalm that's more popular than that? I don't. No matter where I am in Gatherings that are Christian or not Christian. If I'm asked to pray or do something, inevitably, when I say to folks, let's quote the 23rd Psalm together, almost everybody knows it. The King James Version, of course. The 23rd Psalm is, is incredibly popular, and it came from David's heart. And we read psalm after psalm after psalm that came from David's heart. David was passionate about worship. And he produced some beautiful psalms and some horrible theology. Seriously. I I could do a little thing on exegesis and hermeneutics here, but I won't. You know that everything David said in his psalms are not necessarily good theology right he just expressed himself before God in worship and sometimes he said kinda outrageous things you know why because he was angry because he was sullen because he was self-absorbed because he thought the world had it in for him The list goes on. Listen to his psalms, my friend. Read them yourself. I would admonish you to read them yourself every day and read them and sometimes you'll find your own thoughts in them. Sometimes David just shrieks out to God things that you and I would say, that's not appropriate. It wasn't. But it is. Why? Because when God asks us to be honest with Him, He's not asking for perfect theology. He's asking for passionate expressions from the heart. He asks for honesty. And that was David, if nothing else, and to a fault, completely honest. And it got him in trouble a lot of times. But it produced for us remarkable songs of worship. David also had an irrepressible drive. He was the guy who would not rest until the Philistines were run out of town. Some people did not have the stomach to keep it up, but it's almost as if David couldn't help himself. They were the enemies of God and he was going to defeat them. And that may mean that he would lose his life. He was always on the front line with his troops until, of course, when he got older. He was a fighter. He had an irrepressible drive. And that irrepressible drive created in him enormous sin that needed enormous grace. That irrepressible drive on one occasion led him to take a woman for himself who was not his wife, Bathsheba, and to cover up his sin by murdering her husband. That was David. And his irrepressible drive gone bad. And my, my, Did he need grace? This man with an irrepressible drive, gone bad, was also a repentant sinner. When Nathan comes to David and confronts him in a parable allegory story about his sin and says, you're that man, David's response is basically to fall down and say, you're right, I'm sorry, God have mercy on my soul. By the way, that's quite a contrast to the previous king, King Saul. When rebuked by Samuel, Saul's response was this. Okay, I'm sorry already. Now let's get past that and go out with me to the people and honor God and me in front of them. I've looked at the life of Saul before and I've realized that one of the characteristics of King Saul is that there was no true repentance. He was already—he's always, okay, I've done it already. Let's get on with it. He was the kind of leader who would never really admit he was wrong. The kind of person who could never repent because he didn't believe he needed to. I don't suppose it's been the first or the last politician who acts that way. Or the first or the last pastor who acts that way. God have mercy on our souls. David realized when sin was his and he admitted it and repented of it. As a matter of fact, there's this episode that you probably have forgotten about, in which David, after he had a horrible time in his life, was being driven out of his palace. This David, as he left his palace with his people, was assaulted through curses and throwing of stones by a man called Shimei. Shimei was throwing stones at David and cursing him. And one of David's men said, let me take him out. He shouldn't be able to. Talk that way to my Lord. And David, in effect, in effect, not with exactly these words, said this. No, you leave him alone. Because I deserve it. And maybe God will grant mercy on my soul for standing here and listening to the insults. Later on, this same man who had assaulted David, when David came back to power, came to him and bowed down and asked for forgiveness. And again, one of David's men said, let me take him out. And David said, no, never. In other words, can I put... Words into David's mouth? God has forgiven me. How could I not forgive him? He was a repentant sinner and he was a horrible father. Horrible. There's episodes in David's life that just seem unbelievable for a man called a man after God's own heart. David had a daughter, a beautiful daughter, named Tamar. And he had more sons and daughters. But one of the sons knew his sister Tamar to be beautiful. And he wanted Tamar for himself. Make a long story short, he forced himself upon her. And when he did, it was a terrible shame to her she lived the rest of her life so far as we can tell sort of in hiding in seclusion in another brother's house named Absalom Absalom knew what Amnon had done and Absalom was so angry that he said I'm gonna get my brother and on an occasion again a feast Absalom, when David was not there, because David refused to come, he struck down his brother through another. He had somebody else do it. Struck down his brother, Amnon. Oh, by the way, here's the horrible father in the whole thing. David refused to deal with Amnon, even though he knew what he did to the daughter. Amnon's sister. And he refused to deal with Absalom, even though he'd killed his brother. In other words, David was that father who just sat by and let everything go wrong and did nothing. There's all kinds of bad fathers, right? Some of them are abusive and others do nothing. That was David. Of course, he comes back to bite him and eventually Absalom rises up against David, seizes the kingdom for a short period of time, and then Absalom is killed. Perhaps I'm overstepping my bounds, but all of that is David's fault. He could have done something about it and he did nothing. He was a horrible father. You know what we see about David at the very end of his life? It's almost like he cycles back around from Psalm 23. It's like he turns back from running from Saul and writing songs in the desert and wherever else he wrote them, and he comes back around to worship. How so? At the end of his life, he says, God, All I ever wanted to do was to serve you. That must have been what God saw in his heart. All I ever wanted to do was serve you. So let me serve you one last time by building a temple in your honor for worship in the house of Israel. And God said to him, No, David, you're not the man. I often wonder what must have gone through David's mind and his heart when he heard those words. No, thanks but no thanks. You're not the man. I'll leave that job to your son, as we know Solomon. Apparently did, David did a lot of preparation, architectural design and all kinds of things for the temple. And Solomon took up the vision and completed it. That's the story of David now what about Hebrews 11 he appears near the end and then the writer of the book of Hebrews says in effect remember all these people all those people were faithful all those people if you look at them as we have through the summer had at least one major thing in common with David, for the most part, you saw a picture of a righteous sinner. You saw a picture of a person, each person who received the undeserving grace of God. And you saw a picture of a person, each person, who refused to believe that everything about reality was visible to the human eye or to human understanding every one of those people were longing says the writer of the book of Hebrews for the day that you people are now experiencing The coming of the Christ. Look at their example. They waited and they did not give up. Look at their example. They believed in spite of all odds that God was present even when they couldn't see him or feel him. They believed in spite of all odds that God was good when all the world around them seemed evil. They refused to give up and by faith. By faith, they received their reward. I want you, says the writer of the book of Hebrews, to look at that cloud of witnesses. I want you to remember them. And like them, I want you to follow. He goes on to say, some of you are going through some tough stuff right now. They were probably in Rome, best we can figure. You know what we all, else we know about, or think we know <laughs> about this writer and the date at which it was delivered to these people? It was probably, it's hard to say, it's an inaccurate science, but it was probably around the 60 A.D., Mark. Some 30 years after Christ. You know what happens right after 60 A.D.? Some people get offended when I use language like this, but it's real. All hell broke loose. That's what happened after 60 AD. Hell unleashed its fury on the people who read this letter. Nero and other persecutors of the church. And the writer of the book of Hebrews says to these people who are reading this, he says, you haven't gone to the point that you've shed blood yet. Some of those people got sawed in half. You haven't gotten to the point of severe persecution yet, just sort of persecution. Look at what some of them endured. Sometimes, he says, what you endure is actually about discipline. Sometimes, he says in chapter 12, sometimes God is actually shaping you. He's disciplining you like a father will a son. On other occasions, it's not so. The wrath... Of Satan and all his minions is after you and in either case says the writer of the book of Hebrews hang on to your faith don't give up that sounds really severe doesn't it because we're not there but there are people all over the world who are Christ followers who are there today and sometimes we need to remember that and remember them they're literally dying for their faith Pray for those unnamed Christians who need this book. And then, pray for yourself. Pray for yourself because Monday's not Sunday. Because next week or the week after, you're going to feel abandoned. Next week or the week after, God's going to seem all but invisible. Next week or the week after, it's going to seem like God can't possibly be good because there's so much evil around you and in you. Next week or the week after, you need to go back to chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews and remember. Remember, says the writer. They endured, so can you. I want you, with a final flurry, says the writer, to do this for me. I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who went through it all before you did, and who stands at the right hand of God the Father interceding on your behalf who walked through the Holy of Holies and split the curtain and the temple and became the sacrificial lamb on your behalf. I want you to fix your eyes on him. Because your eyes can waver and you can lose sight. And you can lose your way. I um, had a wonderful experience. I've told about it before hiking the Grand Canyon with my son uh, for his 18th birthday. We made the ridiculous rookie mistake of not preparing. I'd never hiked with a backpack like that before, 60 pounds on each back. I had never been in the desert southwest when the temperature was 115 or maybe 120 degrees, but I was that day. We made it to the bottom, we camped, and we started back out. And I knew we were getting close, but it didn't seem like we would ever get to the rim. I I would see buzzards overhead and I'd think, we're gonna meet. I don't know if I'm gonna make it. Of course David was not having the same kind of trouble, but that's youth. He didn't prepare any better than I did, but he was fine. So near the end, I, 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 you know, it was, it was like things were getting blurry. I was so hot and so tired. And so I tried to start playing mental games with myself about how to get to, the, to the, the rim of the Grand Canyon. I kept saying to myself, okay, now from here to there, I could see a point. That's about as far as it is from my house to the corner of 446. I can do that. And I would just break it up into pieces. But on one particular turn, it it just seemed like it was never going to happen. And kind of out of nowhere, uh, a park ranger appeared. Actually, he wasn't out of nowhere. He was approaching my rear very fast because he was walking like normal people do. And I was walking like an ape. And he passed me, and then he just turned around like this, and he goes, Hey, buddy, are you going to make it? (sighs) I thought, do I really look that bad? Because I must have. And I said, yeah, it's kind of slow. And he goes, you're almost there. And he just pointed up like that. He said, see, right around that corner and you'll be there. Hang in there. You know what I did? I took his advice. I couldn't actually see it, but I knew it was up there because I came down once. I couldn't even believe it because it seemed too far away, but I took his advice and I just kept putting one foot in front of the other and I kept looking up and eventually that beautiful rock that has a big hole in it where you first start out on the hike appeared. And we walked through it. And I felt like I'd gone to heaven. Except I couldn't walk. I think you can walk and run and shout and stuff in heaven. I kind of crawled to the car. We went to the biggest, best hotel we could find. That had a huge hot tub in it and two-room suite. And I soaked my limbs and I got in bed and I didn't think I could wake up. But I'd made it. Why? Because I believed somebody. He had a word from me, for me, from the top. And I fixed my eyes on that place, and I made it. And now I look back on that episode in my life and say it was one of the most wonderful experiences. I ever had faith is like that when you're in the middle of it and it's hard it doesn't seem wonderful but trust me no better yet trust Jesus the author and perfecter of your faith let's pray Lord you um, were so kind to us in the person of Jesus Christ, to send the very Son of God to walk our grand canyons, to remind us that you have a view from the top, to remind us that you were all the way down there and you came all the way out. To remind us that your grace is so amazing, so amazing, that it overcomes our sins. And it's so amazing that when we reflect on it and that great cloud of witnesses, it gives us strength to go on. So like the writer of the book of Hebrews said, Lord, we, we hear you admonishing us. Strengthen your feeble arms. Stand up on your weak knees. Give thanks to God. And fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the grace-filled perfecter of your faith. Amen. Thank you